Today's scripture reading is in Romans chapter 7, and it can be found on your pew Bible on page 915. Released from the law bound to Christ, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. The law and sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin is, had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sorry, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. That that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now I do what I, now if I do what I want to do, what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law work at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Anya. That was a long passage of scripture and a very dense one. Um, so we'll be dealing with that today. All right. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, thanks for being here with us at Spring Garden. 
I was wondering, I'm assuming many of you have had lessons of some kind. That'd be, that'd be the case, whether it's music lessons or uh, some sort of sport lesson, something else. My kids were taking swim lessons this last week, so I've been thinking a little bit more about their, their swim lessons. And I feel like swim lessons, at least where they're going, have changed since I was a kid. They, there's a very, there's an emphasis on the exact hand position as you move back and then your head must be in a certain place as you move the stroke through and it just feels very mechanical, uh, very, very strict and if you don't have everything precisely correct, you do not move to the next level, right? There, there are check boxes, is your whip kick exactly correct in the, the leg positioning? Maybe you had some sort of uh, lesson or instructor that was like that. Now, when I took swim lessons, uh, my sister and I went into, uh, we went to this woman and swam in her backyard pool. That was our, our swim lesson. And unlike the instructors my kids have were very warm and inviting, this lady was not warm and inviting. And I, I have this vivid memory of, of standing on the step while my sister, I don't know if she wasn't doing it correctly or what was happening, but the instructor took her and put her in the water, in the deep part of the water, and she bobbed, thrashed, and sank. All right? That, it was the 80s. That's how you did things then, right? You just throw them in the water. But things are, it seems things are definitely different now, but there are different ways and styles of learning to swim. But however we learn to swim, the reason we do it is because if we don't know how to swim, we'll drown. Right? That's the reason why we're taking swim lessons, unless you want to do it professionally or make it to the Olympics or something. But what if doggy paddling didn't count? What if we all had to have everything exactly correct in the strokes in order to not drown? What if that was the standard of swimming and staying alive? All of us would fail. Almost all of us, unless you're a really good swimmer. We can't do that. We can't be perfect in our swimming stroke. Today, as we're looking at Romans 7, Romans 7, 1 through 25, that was just read for us, we're continuing in the series on Romans, and I'm picking up from where uh, Emily left off last week in Romans 6. What Paul is getting at is that sin is real. Sin kills us. And we can't do it on our own. Just like those strokes, if we don't have it perfect, Paul seems to be saying if the law is not kept perfectly, we don't have a chance. Really encouraging, right? But this is the stark human reality, is that God has set a standard, and if we don't reach it, we are incapable of doing so. Sin is real. Sin kills and we're not able to do that on our own. Now, I'm, I'm a bit more of a teacher than a preacher, and so I hope you'll just hang with me for a second. Uh, Romans, we've been in for a while, and some of us have been in and out being on, on vacation and holiday and may not be as aware of uh, some of the things that have been going on. But Paul wrote this letter to the community of believers in Rome uh, before he had ever visited there. 
He had never been there. He had not founded that community of believers. So part of this letter is actually introducing himself to them because he's planning to visit. So he's going to go see these people. And in some ways, what he's been explaining for a large part of what we've been covering so far and what we'll include next week in Romans 8 is essentially explaining how he explains the good news of Jesus. This is, this is sort of his way of saying, this is what I, these are, these are my views, this is, I'm coming to see you. He's also going to ask them for some money so he can go to Spain on a mission trip. But uh, he's mainly introducing himself. One of the challenges with this community of believers in Rome, though, is that it is a community of Jewish believers in Jesus and non-Jewish believers in Jesus. There is a a mixed community of Jew and non-Jew in this believing community. And there's a bit of tension because it was the Jewish believers who started this community, but, and, then other, and then non-Jews joined the community, but the Roman emperor kicked Jews out of Rome. So for a long time, it was non-Jews running the community, and after about a decade or so, the Jews were able to come back because the Roman emperor had died. So now the Jews are coming back into this community that's been run by non-Jews for a while that was started by the Jews in the first place. Can you say tension? So that's some of what Paul is addressing. And whenever we hear we or all in Romans, he more or less means Jew and non-Jew. All of us together are caught in this. So as Paul's been moving through this conversation... In in Romans 3, he talks about the fact that all have fallen sin and fall short of the glory of God. All, Jew and non-Jew, fall short of the glory of God. But then Paul continues and gives Abraham as an example. Abraham was considered righteous before God, even before there was a law. So in some sense, they're sort of like, you Jewish believers, don't get so excited and hoity-toity about your law, because... Your founder, your forefather, Abraham, was considered righteous before there was the law. He, later on, he will, he'll give the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, a hard time, too, for different reasons. But this is where he's sort of moving, dealing with them. But Jesus died for all, Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, while we, all of us, were still sinners. And then in Romans 5, Paul gives the example of two men, Adam Sin sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and then death thus to everyone. But then one man, Jesus, has brought righteousness that is capable and possible for all people. What Paul then has been talking about in this last section before this is some some, um, possible questions that arise if this is true. So he asked some of those questions in Romans 6, and Emily dealt with one of those last week. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, if God gives grace for all sin, maybe we should just keep sinning so that there will be more and more grace. Paul says no. A second question in 6.15, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So we're under grace, we're not under the law, so the law is not keeping tabs on us anymore. The the law officer is not looking anymore so we can run the red light, all right? Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. And he's continuing in, as we get here to 7.1, 
Paul's continuing that conversation because he's only dealt with the first part of that question. In 6.15, he says, Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? No, we shouldn't sin. That's sort of what he's dealt with in 6.15 through 6.23. But now he returns to the law question, being under the law. And he starts there in 7.1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So being under the law is tied to death. I think we're all sort of aware of the fact that when someone dies, whatever the legal situation, the legal situation changes, right? You're no longer able to receive your pension or your Canada benefits if you've died. If you try to keep getting those, that's called fraud, right? Uh, you can't vote if you're dead, right? So death changes the way the law works. And so Paul uses this example of, of a woman married to a man. She is married to the man, and if she has relationship with another person, another man, that is called adultery. However, if the husband dies, it's no longer adultery if then she marries someone. Death has changed that. Now, Paul uses that as an example or an analogy then to talk about the relationship of us as human beings to the law. Now, what gets a little challenging is that it doesn't make an easy one-to-one correlation here because in his analogy, it's the, the husband who dies and then we've got another husband and it's the woman. But when Paul's talking about it, we as essentially as the, the wife have died. We've died to sin. We've died in Jesus. Jesus has also died, though, as the husband. So it doesn't always, it doesn't match up exactly. The point is that death has brought about a change. And so that one we were connected to before, the law no longer holds sway over us because a death has occurred. Jesus has died and freed us from that. There's no longer any, we're not enslaved anymore to sin. One thing, though, to remember is that freedom from sin, though, means slavery to righteousness and slavery to God. We're always slaves, but who are we enslaved to becomes part of Paul's question. The key, one of the key points here in this first part is in verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 7. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you, may, you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You also died to the law. We're no longer under the law because of Jesus' death. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, to which Paul has previously talked about as being baptized into his death. By connecting ourselves with Jesus, we become part of this this, we have this same sort of relationship to the law. But one thing I want to point out is the end of that phrase, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The point of that is to bear fruit. When we were under the law and under sin, as he talked about in the previous section, the fruit that was born was death. Sin leads to death. That's the fruit of sin. You can see that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You can see that throughout 
history throughout the biblical narrative. Sin leads to death. And so by having this relationship joining with Jesus, the fruit that we bear is fruit for God, not continuing in this fruit of death. In 7, uh, seven 5, and 6, Paul, one way of understanding this is he is giving two, a two-part two-part example of what's happening. And they bec- it becomes an introduction for what he's going to talk about in, uh, all the way through 8.13. He says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There's a contrast here. And what I think is happening with what he's going to talk about next is 7.5 is where he sort of highlights um, this living in the flesh and what that looks like. And that's, I think, what he's talking about from in the rest of this chapter, 7.7 to 7.25. He's going to talk about the new way of life in the spirit in 8.1 to 13, which somebody will talk about next week. So more or less, what we're talking about this week is sort of the, the dark side of the story. The light side will be talked about next week, right? This is the part of the story, the narrative, where things, everything goes downhill, the hero has no hope, and that's where you're left, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. But you, just, you can hold out hope. There's sort of a but at the end of this. That's actually how the next chapter more or less starts. Therefore, now then. But, but we're in the... We're in the before that section, all right? So Paul then in the section that follows, 7.7 through 7.25 is now talking about what happens when we are, what we are living in the realm of the flesh, when we are bearing fruit, uh, fruit for death. Fruit for sin. He opens, um, sorry, just excuse me for a second here. He opens, he opens the section with another one of these questions. What shall we say then? So he's picked up, he had that question in 6.1 and he had that again in 6.15. What shall we say then? And he's raising questions that people may say, Oh, well, if you believe this about our relationship with the law, well, then we should sin more. We should sin because we're not under the law. The law is not keeping tabs on us. But now the question is, what shall we say? Is the law sinful? Does the law bring about sin? Is it bad? Paul's answer is certainly not. This would obviously be a tension in a Jewish and non-Jewish community. Gentiles were not called to be under the law. That's part of what Paul argues through most of his writings. There's, Gentiles do not, are not held to that law. However, if you'd grown up in that law as a, as a Jew, that is a strong part of your heritage. That's an important part of your heritage and your relationship with God. And so is that still necessary? Paul's not really addressing that here, but my assumption is yes, it still is, but in a, but in a new way because Why? A death has occurred. So the law is not sinful. Nevertheless, 
I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was had the law not said, you shall not covet. This section, actually 7.5 through 7.25, is probably one of the most controversial sections in Romans, if not the New Testament. So I'm very thrilled to be (laughs) working through that with you. Uh, There are numerous interpretations. They all carry about equivalent sort of weight. But because of the nature of this, I have to take one of the views. All right? So, uh, and I, we can talk more about it later if you want some of the details as to why. But uh, one of the questions, the major questions is, particularly when we get to verse 8 and 9, is who is speaking? There's an I, but is it actually Paul who speaks? Because some of what Paul talks about here in this section does not fit with what Paul says earlier about I have died, we have died to the law, and what he says later in chapter 8 about being alive with Jesus in the Spirit. There's, it doesn't necessarily fit. So I'll, I'll do my best to, to work through this. But what we see happening here is that the law, the law is not sinful but it leads us to sin. In some ways, it becomes like uh, a tool that gets used by sin in the way Paul talks about this. But what is happening here is that Paul may be talking, and this is, this is what I've sort of become convinced of, is that Paul is talking as if he is Adam or Israel. That's the I here. Because Paul has already said we are no longer slaves to sin. But here he's talking as if he is a slave to sin. I knew I was probably going to lose most of you at that point. Uh, because it doesn't naturally read like that. Paul's not really giving us some, uh, some headlines on that. But the key, one of the key phrases here in 7-7 is, I would not have known what sin was, what coveting was, if the law had not said you shall not covet. It's interesting that Paul chooses this as an example, coveting. The, the word here is actually a general word for desire or lust. That's the sort of sense that's going on here, but that's actually the word used in the Greek text of the Old Testament for do not covet, which is why our translations translate it that way. But Paul may be using this, this the 10th commandment as an example of the broader sense in which we want what we don't have. And in some ways, we don't keep the other nine commandments because we want what we want and not what God wants or what other people want. So in some ways, Paul is saying, I learned what coveting was, I learned what sin was because God said, don't do it. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Keep off the grass. You ever seen one of those signs? Does it make you want to put your, put your foot on it? Maybe some of you are like, I'm going to walk right across this. What about eat your vegetables? Anybody ever push their vegetables around on the plate? Ended up in your napkin, maybe, under the table? What about do not tap on the glass? <laughs> right? 
There's a, there's a connection here with what Paul is saying with this uh, to Israel, notable in the sense that the coming of the law and the naming of the Ten Commandments. So the eye of, the eye of Paul here is more likely the, the eye of Israel. But we also see an Adam connection. When uh, Paul writes the idea of once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, a sin sprang to life and I died. But also in the idea of um, that sin, sin deceived me. That's almost the same phrase from Genesis 3.13 when Adam and Eve say, I was, I was deceived. Sin deceived me and, and tricked me. What is it about doing what we're told not to do that, that pulls us? What is it about that, that sign, keep off the grass or do not tap the glass, that, that sort of pushes against us? I'm using more humorous examples here, though, <laughs> to help us get it to consider this sort of issue because the reality of what Paul's talking about is much more serious. That we are tempted and we are deceived by sin. And sin, as Paul says, uses this do not do this as a way to sort of incite us to do it and to reject what God wants. Last week, Emily used an example from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And as I was thinking about this, a, um, a story from C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew came to mind. So it seemed appropriate following up from that. But the magician's nephew is about two kids, Diggory and Polly. Diggory is the, the nephew of a, of a magician, so-called magician. But he's made these magical rings, and Diggory and Polly, he has Diggory and Polly testing them out. He doesn't want to do it himself, so he has these kids test it out for him, and they end up in another world. There's a bit more things going on, but Diggory and Polly end up in this world that is dying. There's no life. The buildings are decaying, collapsing, and there's no living thing. And as they're walking through, they end up in this room that has this bell and a hammer to hit the bell. And as they are there, they see the bell, and the thing, I'll read from the text here, the thing in the middle of the room was not exactly a table. It was a square pillar about four feet high, and on it there rose a little golden arch from which there hung a little golden bell. And beside this, there lay a little golden hammer to hit the bell with. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, said Diggory. There seems to be something written here, said Polly, stooping down and looking at the side of the pillar. By gum, so there is, said Diggory. But of course, we shan't be able to read it. Shan't we? I'm not so sure, said Polly. They both looked at it hard, and as you might have expected, the letters cut in the stone were strange. But now a great wonder happened, for as they looked, though the shape of the strange letters never altered, they found that they could understand them. If only Diggory had remembered what he himself had said a few minutes ago, that this was an enchanted room, he might have guessed that the enchantment was beginning to work. But what he was too wild with curiosity to think about that. He was longing more and more to know what was written on the pillar, and very soon they both knew. What it said was something like this. At least this is the sense of it, though the poetry when you read it here was better. 
Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger, or wonder till it drives you mad. What would have followed if you had? No fear, said Polly. We don't want any danger. Oh, but don't you see it's no good, said Diggory. We can't get out of it now. We shall always be wondering what else would have happened if we had struck the bell. I'm not going home to be driven mad by always thinking of that. No fear. Polly and Diggory end up getting in a fight. Polly tries to grab the rings to get out of the situation. Diggory grabs her hand, reaches across her, grabs the bell, smacks it. And some really bad things happen. <laughs> You'll have to read the rest of the story to find out what happens. What is it about it? What is it about those rules that make us want to do it? Evil sort of springs to life in it. As Paul talks about sin as a personal force, sin is the subject of so many of these verbs here. Sin seizes the opportunity by us being told no. It produces every kind of coveting. Sin springs to life. Sin deceives. Sin kills. Sin enslaves. Sin takes prisoners. Uh, Brendan Byrne describes this sort of desire to do what we are told not to do in this way. What would seem to be in mind is the idea that prohibition stemming from God awoke a latent human propensity to chafe and rebel at creaturely dependence upon the creator. In other words, that's a fancy way of saying we, uh, we don't like being told what to do. We rebel against it. We chafe against being told what to do. We become toddlers in a sense. No, I'm not going to do it. When, or I'm going to do what you said not to do in that response. So when the law, that is God's covenant, was given to his people, sin deceived them. Like Adam and Eve were deceived before, sin showed what it was that it's utterly sinful. That's what Paul says in verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. Sin outed itself. It said, hi, I'm sinful, I'm deceiving you, you're going to sin now as a result. And that that's what happened. So, Paul also in 7.12 says that even though sin has used the law, sin is still holy. The commandment is still holy, righteous, and good. Going back to his question, is the law sinful? No, it's not. It's actually good, but sin used it to get into us. How do we respond to those temptations that are a bit more serious than keeping off the grass? Each of us has the, our own sorts of things that we wrestle with, that we deal with, but what, what is it? How do we respond to those desires, to being told no or to being told do this, and it's not something that we want to do? Sin is real, and sin kills 
As Paul moves on to the next section, which is uh, in 714 through 25, we have another section that has this sort of controversial interpretation. Who, again, who's the I? But here the issue, the question is, is when? Is Paul talking about this person who is unable to do the law? Is this before meeting Jesus or after meeting Jesus? Continuing with the interpretation I'm, I'm following, I think that this is before. This is a pre-sort of experience of the law and a pre-experience of sin before meeting Jesus. Part of the reason is because, again, Paul has said we are no longer slaves to sin. And he will say that again. So how can this be? I, I think part of the reason why we see this as a present reality is because so many of us uh, resonate with the idea of I don't do what I want to do. I want to do this. I want to delight in God's word, but I don't keep it. You don't have to nod or anything. I'll admit it for myself. That, that, that's some, that's, I think that's sort of our own reality. But I think what Paul is getting, getting at here, which he repeats in two places, 717 and 720, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Sin has control. But if we've died to sin, sin can't have control. So this seems to be a, pre, a pre-situation. It's the reality of what it means to live under the law without Jesus. We are incapable of doing it. This I that speaks, speaks about the desire to do good, but the person is completely incapable. It's impossible of following the law and doing good. To delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and, light, day and night. In your head, you can do that, but you can't live it out. It's an impossibility. And as Paul is very repetitive through this section, but Paul comes to this just crying out in verse 24, this I, what a wretched person I am. I can't do what I want to do. I'm trapped. I'm enslaved. And this person recognizes the need to be rescued. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The situation is impossible. Sin is real and we're not, we're incapable of living with it. We are drawn by the rule, by the command to break it. Sin deceives us and we rebel against God's command and we need to be rescued. We need a rescuer. And Paul, even though he has a brief thanksgiving here in verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, he still returns and says, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now again, I don't think this is Paul speaking about his own personal experience. I think he's speaking about this is what it means as a person under the law. This is what it's like. This is where the therefore of 8.1 is a big change. And I'm not sure who's preaching next week, but that's where the positive side will go. Therefore. But here, we're caught in the fact of this incapability. We're left at the point where there is no hope. The story looks impossible. There's darkness. There is no light. Now, the view, if, if you would agree with me that the view of this passage is about someone who has not met Jesus yet and who has not come to live in the life of the Spirit, I think that is something that is hard to probably get your head around if you haven't thought about it before. 
But it does, um, it does, again, it resonates with us wanting to do what God has called us to do and being incapable of doing it. Even those of us who walk in the Spirit uh, still stumble and still feel that lure of the deception of sin. And that's a, that's a reality that we have to be aware of. But for those of us who do know Jesus and who do live in the Spirit, who believe in Jesus, those of us who have been rescued by him, it is worth asking ourselves whether or not we're still trying to follow the rules. If we're not under the law, it's not the keeping of those rules that makes God happy with us. God has saved us because of who we are, just as he declared Abraham righteous because. There's still some responsibility of how we live, though, in relationship to that, and Paul will get into that later on in Romans 12 through 15. There are still important ways we need to live, but it's not living according to the rules that makes God happy. God has already declared us righteous, as he did with Abraham. So where do we still try to keep the rules to please God? If we have to save ourselves with perfect swimming techniques, we're not going to do it. It's impossible. We will drown. We're not able to keep the law perfectly because sin uses it to deceive us. We rebel against that rule and that law. We need help because sin is real and sin deceives and kills. As the band comes up to lead us in the last song, I'd like each of us to consider ways in which we may still rebel against what God calls us to do, what God desires us. Where are we in need of help? We're incapable of doing it. We need the help. Are we willing to ask for it and seek for that help? Recognizing our need and inability is the first step toward living as slaves of God rather than as slaves of sin.